are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. And now would you rise, please, as we read scripture together. I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they'd crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you've heard the saying, I've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's inevitable like that, but I I do think, maybe contempt's not the right word for it, but when we consider the the death of Jesus, familiarity has perhaps made the horrible a little ho-hum. We spent the last couple of weeks since Ash Wednesday walking in the way of the cross. We've been following Jesus' footsteps in the last few hours before his crucifixion because we've been praying along the way that God will show us that the way of the cross is none other than the way of life and peace for us. Well, that prayer becomes even more difficult when we look into the depths of the pain that crucifixion entails. And it becomes even more difficult still when we look past the pain into the shame of crucifixion. See, 2,000 years of familiarity has softened maybe not the pain of crucifixion, but the shame and the humiliation and the degradation and the dehumanization of the cross. Now, of course, up to this point, the story has not so much been a story of fairness and judicial integrity or of respect for basic human dignity or rule of law. But in the passage that we're considering this morning, the level of shame and degradation is reaching its peak. We've just come from the place where Pilate has washed his hands of this whole affair. He wants nothing more to do with Jesus or with the Jewish rulers or with this entire debacle. He resents that he's being used by the Jewish rulers to eliminate one of their own political enemies, but if he pushes any more, a riot's going to break out, and that would threaten his own political career. So we're not going there. So where we left off last week, Pilate has Jesus beaten, then delivered to the soldiers to be led away for crucifixion. 
Now, I mentioned last week that Matthew, along with the other gospel writers, he doesn't particularly dwell on the details, the physical details of the crucifixion for good reason, not because he's squeamish, I don't think, but because if you were living at this time in any Roman-occupied territory, you knew what a crucifixion looked like. Uh, you knew what it entailed. Uh, you knew well, the, or at least you have seen, the pain that comes from a crucifixion, the agony that it causes. But as bad as the physical abuse and the torture of crucifixion was, this is where we get the word excruciating, that wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it, the worst part of a crucifixion was the degradation, the shame. It was more than simply inhumane, it was dehumanizing uh, in ways that we, from our cultural position, just cannot even imagine. See, when we think about the cross, we usually think about the fact that Jesus died, but when Matthew and the early preachers and teachers of Christianity taught that the God they worshipped was a God who had died, I mean, that was offensive enough on its own. Uh, the deeper offense wasn't just that they were worshipping a God who had died, but that they worshipped a God who had died on a cross. It was the mode of Jesus' death, even more than the fact that Jesus died. It was the mode of his death that scandalized the Jewish and the Greek and the Roman world uh, one author writes uh, about suffering in general that it's not, you know, it's not suffering as such that we human beings fear. It's just suffering in general, but specifically the suffering that degrades, suffering that dehumanizes a person. And one theologian writes about crucifixion, that crucifixion was designed to be the ultimate insult, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. She says, degradation was the whole point. See, to walk the way of the cross is more than just to be willing to suffer because Jesus suffered. To walk the way of the cross is not just sharing in his suffering, but also sharing in his shame, in his humiliation. That's where we pick up the story in verse 27 with Jesus being, to, being prepared to suffer under the only manner of execution in the ancient world that was specifically and intentionally designed to pile untold amounts of shame upon its victim until the victim was deemed to be unfit and unacceptable for human company or human compassion. So take a look, verse 27. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. This is Pilate's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, before Jesus. Pilate is letting his soldiers take Jesus into the central courtyard of the palace, away from the crowds, to prepare him for crucifixion. Uh, prepare here being a euphemism for having a little fun before crucifying him. Now, this group of soldiers, by the way, they were not Roman soldiers. These were soldiers who were recruited from among the Gentile population of the area. And given the tension between Jewish and Gentiles in this area, it's not surprising that they took great delight in mocking the so-called king of the Jews. And this mocking away from the prying eyes of the crowd begins by stripping Jesus naked and then they take one of the soldiers' red cloaks, they would all wear these short red cloaks, and they put it on him in imitation of a, a royal robe. For a crown, 
Uh, Some of the soldiers took a few fronds from a a palm tree. You know the, the part of a palm that we wave on Palm Sunday, that you wave to herald the coming of the king? Well, that part is cut from a little higher up the branch, above the five-inch spikes that are tough enough to puncture a truck tire. See, the soldiers, they take one of these, or a number of these palm fronds, they discard the part that's waved to herald the coming of a king and twist together the rest of it, the bottom half of this frond, the, you know, the spiky part, into the shape of a crown and, and crush it down on Jesus' head. The spikes, of course, dig in, deliver Uh, the toxin that is at the tip of the spikes before the tips break off under the skin. Uh, But the crown wasn't designed only to induce pain. The thorns that faced outward from Jesus' head radiated like rays from the sun. That's what Caesar's crown looked like. It was called the corona crown. Another soldier takes a a reed, uh, you think something like a, a piece of wild bamboo, Uh, and places it in Jesus' hand in imitation of a royal scepter, the staff that a king or a queen carries that symbolizes their authority. And to make the mockery complete, one by one, the soldiers parade before him, kneeling in his presence like any good Roman would before the king, crying not the usual, Hail Caesar, but Hail King of the Jews. Though, of course, they're saying much more than just those five words. The point of this whole farce is the utter degradation that it caused. Jesus is the true and the rightful king, but he has been completely dethroned in an ironic reversal. He's given a false robe, a false crown, a false scepter, paid false homage even though he is deserving of so much more. See, it's the the falseness that's the point to cause as much humiliation as possible. And so beyond simply crying, Hail, King of the Jews, they heap words of abuse on him as well, mocking his kingship, mocking his Jewishness uniquely on display in his nakedness, mocking his physical suffering. But as they tire of the farce, they begin to physically abuse him, spitting on him, uh, striking him, taking the reed out of his hands, the symbol of his authority, and then hitting him with it again and again. To make the dethroning of Jesus complete, they strip him of the so-called royal robe that they've put on his shoulders and put his own clothes back on him to prepare him to be crucified. See, not only do we have in the story that Matthew is telling of Jesus' death, not only do we have the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus as their promised Messiah, now the Gentiles are rejecting Jesus as any sort of king as well. Now, in Roman custom, those who were crucified were usually led to their crucifixion naked. This is part of the shame, the physical shame that's heaped on the person. But there's some evidence, at least in Jewish areas, because of the sensibility of the population that found nakedness more, more offensive than the Roman society did. Rather than risk a crowd turning into a riot, they would give the, uh, the victim back at least some of their clothes, some semblance of clothing, once they were back in public. So they put Jesus' clothes back on him, and someone runs and fetches the cross piece that Jesus will be nailed to. That's the horizontal part on which his arms will be 
stretched out above his head. I know most of the depictions of Jesus carrying his cross in movies or in art show him carrying the whole thing, Uh, but in Roman crucifixions, uh, the vertical part, the post, is already in the ground up on that hill. It's kept there permanently. Because crucifixions are just a whole lot more convenient if half the equipment is always kept in place. But still, the cross piece itself is is more than a burden. If you've ever tried to carry an 8-inch by 10-inch by 7-foot-long piece of rough-hewn timber, you know it's not light. Try doing it after you've been up all night and beaten and scourged and flogged and whipped and abused. So the cross piece is, is... tied to his arms, across his shoulders, and a placard on which is written, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, is hung around his neck, and Jesus is let out of the palace courtyard into the streets of Jerusalem to be paraded in full display for the scorn of the crowd. And so we have a king, a king being led through the streets, dragging a heavy wooden beam across his shoulders as the crowd heaps scorn and abuse upon him. Surely there were some in the crowd in the streets of Jerusalem who knew and loved Jesus, who were affected by his message, and they may have been mourning his crucifixion, but by and large, crowds knew what to do when a crucifixion was happening. They took pleasure in heaping abuse on the one who was being put to death. The point of crucifixion was for it to be seen by as many people as possible. And during the Passover feast, Jerusalem is as full as it's ever going to get. The public parade is part of the point because it it, it creates just an utter debasing of the victim. The crowd has an important role to play in dehumanizing the one who was carrying his own cross. They knew they were part of the spectacle, part of the entertainment of it all, with the job of heaping scorn, verbal scorn, spitting, throwing refuse on Jesus as he walks by. Because the point, the express purpose of crucifixion was to utterly dehumanize the victim. Until, in the eyes of everyone watching, the victim was no longer considered even a human being. They had been degraded to the point of being an animal or even lower. One theologian commenting on all these proceedings writes that crucifixion was a form of advertisement or public announcement, essentially saying, this person you see parading before you, this person nailed to a cross on top of the hill is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. Crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience, but in order to be seen. The whole affair, from the beating at the beginning to the nailing at the end, the entire affair is intended to strip Jesus completely of his humanity. And though by this point, as we get to verse 32, the He is physically and he is mentally exhausted. Jesus at least manages to carry uh, the rough 
and heavy beam to the edge of the city where a North African man named Simon is coming into Jerusalem. We don't know if Simon's Jewish or, or what his heritage is. We just know he's from North Africa. And at this point, he's coming to Jerusalem ostensibly for the feast. And at the time, it's common practice for soldiers to force civilians to carry burdens on their behalf. I mean, that's the practice that is behind Jesus way back in Matthew chapter 5 saying, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go two miles with him. Well, Simon, for his part, isn't looking to play any role in this spectacle. He's there, we assume, for the feast. He's not looking to get involved. But he's in the right place at the right time, or maybe the wrong place at the wrong time, and the soldiers conscript him to help. Now, at this point, the majority of Jesus' followers, probably everybody but maybe that core group of just a few who had some inkling of what was going to happen and were starting to see what Jesus had predicted coming to fruition, at this point, the vast majority of Jesus' own followers are not looking at his humiliation and his degradation and this crucifixion as obedience to God or as any sort of heroic self-sacrifice. Precisely because it's a crucifixion, they would have only seen it as the complete discrediting of all of Jesus' claims. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to have come with a message from God, but he's been convicted by the religious rulers of blasphemy. He's been convicted by the civil authorities of sedition, and he's being punished in a state-sponsored public torture and murder condemned by authorities all around. At this point, no one wants to be associated with Jesus. I mean, Simon no less than anyone else, because to walk the way of the cross is not just to suffer with Jesus. It's not just to share in his suffering, it is also to share in his shame and in his humiliation. But Simon, verse 32 tells us, is compelled. He's forced to assist Jesus to take the burden of the crossbeam onto himself in order to bring Jesus to the place of his execution. See, the soldiers are taking Jesus outside the city walls, outside the sphere of respectable society. He's no longer a human being by this point. He is merely a beast that can no longer carry the burden that was placed on him. And they're taking him up to the top of the hill that's called Golgotha, Skull Hill. You may have heard the hill referred to as Calvary. That's from the Latin word for skull. It's a highly visible place where the crosses can stand out in stark relief against the sky. Visible for anyone and everyone to see because the message is undeniable. This is what happens to those who set themselves up against Rome. This is what happens to insurrectionists, to those who dare to believe that their God can rescue them from the power that opposes them. But it's more than just a punishment or a convenient means of execution. In the ancient world, crucifixion was universally viewed with horror and reserved only for the lowest classes. No Roman citizen, no uh, non-Roman citizen who held high office could be crucified unless Caesar himself specifically gave an edict that that one be crucified. This is, ancient sources tell us, this is a form of death that is reserved only for the slaves and the rebels. Jesus is dying a rebel's Death, But even in the midst of this death that he is being called on to die, there's at least 
one small indication of compassion in verse 34. It says, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Wine, uh, most commentators agree, this wine mixed with gall or, or myrrh, as, as Mark specifies, uh, was a narcotic. It was basically a drug intended for the sufferer to consume right before their crucifixion as a way to dull the senses and soften the pain that they're about to experience. It was literally the least you could do for someone about to be crucified. And Matthew writes it the way he does uh, intentionally. He wants us to hear echoes of the Old Testament, again, as he has throughout this whole story. He wants us to hear the words of the righteous sufferer, especially in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is one of these songs that, that someone has written because they are, they are suffering before God and they're calling out to him, crying out to him for, for rescue. And in Psalm 69, the author says or sings to God, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor and my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And I looked for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And yet, Jesus, in tasting this wine with the, the gall in it, it, it refuses to drink it, not because it was bitter and tasting horrible, but because he was determined to endure his fate, his shame and degradation and dehumanization with full consciousness, not opting out of even one ounce of the pain, but enduring it in its entirety. And with that, the refusal of the wine. Matthew, almost in passing, tells us, well, Jesus was crucified. And then the story continues. See, Matthew doesn't dwell on the details of a, circum a crucifixion, doesn't dwell on the details of the crucifixion because everybody knew. He doesn't have to tell us about Jesus being stripped yet again, being laid on the ground, his open wounds on his back being rubbed into the dirt, of his arms being pulled up roughly to where the crossbeam is and nails driven through his wrists into the wood. He doesn't need to describe how then the single piece of wood is lifted by the soldiers on long poles and Jesus dangles by his wrists as they pull the crossbeam up and over the post and drop it into place. How his feet then are nailed to the vertical post to give him something to rest his weight on. As if a nail through the foot can be considered restful. But he does tell us how they then take the placard that is around his neck and remove it and nail it to the wood right over his head, the piece that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And though his executioners mean it as an irony and Pilate means it as an insult, Matthew means it as fact. This is, in fact, the King of the Jews, though how a king can be crucified and still be king we don't yet understand, but Matthew goes on with the story in verse 35. It says, when they had crucified him, then they, the soldiers, divided his garments among them by casting lots. As the soldiers watch Jesus struggling for breath, they're playing dice games in order to see who goes home with his clothing. 
And in it, we hear again an echo of the voice of the righteous sufferer from the Old Testament, this time from Psalm 22. This psalm that starts with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then goes on to say, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within me and my strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count every one of my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And if, as if the pain itself weren't enough, the ultimate humiliation of the cross, the ultimate degradation and dehumanization of the cross is that Jesus is forced to become his own executioner. See, the weight of a body hung by its wrists over the top makes it impossible for Jesus to, to breathe. It suffocates him as it collapses his diaphragm as he, he hangs there. And so he is forced to choose the extent of his own torture. Either suffocate or endure the pain of forcing yourself up long enough to take a breath before collapsing again until asphyxiation drives again a lifting against the nail in the feet simply to stay alive. His own body is being used against him. You know, in almost every other form of execution, the victim is at least given the dignity of being dispatched by another human being. But on his cross, Jesus, the king of the Jews, is dying truly and completely alone. See, to walk the way of the cross is more than just to share in the suffering of Jesus. It is also to share in his shame, his humiliation. And our call as people who walk the way of the cross with Jesus doesn't end with simply joining him in suffering, but it extends to joining him in humiliation, degradation, dehumanization. You know, as we try to learn to walk in the way of the cross as our Savior walked, it's one thing to say, Jesus suffered, so we should be willing to suffer. It's quite another to say, Jesus endured shame and degradation, humiliation and dehumanization, so I should be willing to as well for his sake. It's difficult for us to grasp the depths of the humiliation that Jesus endured. We're just too far removed from it, and it's been quite a while since uh, the society we live in has publicly tortured someone to death as a warning to the rest of us. Now, to the Israelites watching Jesus crucified, for a Jewish person, someone who was executed in this way was utterly rejected, cursed by the people of God and excluded from the covenant between God and his people outside of the realm of possibility of God's love. 
See, Matthew intends, again, for us to hear echoes of the Old Testament in the way he tells this story, this time from the law. Anyone who is left exposed on a tree is cursed by God. See, to the Jewish mind, anyone who is condemned by the law as a blasphemer and then suffers this kind of death, pinned to a tree, to a cross, is cursed and excluded from relationship with God and excluded from relationship with God's people. A person who is left to die on a tree or whose dead body is hung up on a tree for display is no longer even human. That's how cursed they are. One theologian comments that of all the ways that someone can be killed, neither impaling nor hanging nor any other method of doing away with a person other than crucifixion, other than hanging on a tree, was ever specifically identified by God as being God-forsaken. And to the Greeks, crucifixion was an embarrassment. It was the most degrading form of of punishment for a king, a Messiah, a God, to be worshipped because he was crucified was perverse and ugly and offensive. The, the difference between the Greek gods and the Greek people is that the gods were immortal. They can't die. And so the religion of the Greeks had absolutely nothing in common with a religion built on a sign of utterly dehumanizing shame. Given the shame and the degradation of the cross, we wouldn't be surprised if the gospel writers and the later teachers and preachers of Christianity didn't just simply gloss over it quickly and then move on to the resurrection. Yeah, he died, and then he rose again. That's the important part. Except the cross is the important part. We may ask the question, why did Jesus need to die? But that's not really the question. The question is, why did Jesus need to be crucified? Why not simply beheaded like John or hanged like some other common criminal? Why crucifixion? Well, the reason Jesus had to be crucified is by no other mode of execution could Jesus come anywhere near embodying the full extent of the shame and the dehumanization that sin has wrought on humanity and that our sin has wrought on ourselves and on one another. We are utterly and completely debased and dehumanized by our own sin And in his crucifixion, Jesus was utterly and completely debased and dehumanized so that you and I could be made human again. The sin which degrades us and makes us no better than an animal was taken from us and placed onto him. He became the degraded one so that we could be lifted. He became shame so that our shame would be forever removed. He was indeed cursed by hanging on a tree, but he became the curse that removed the curse from us. This is the meaning of the cross. This is the way of the cross. 
not simply to share with Jesus in his suffering, but to share with him in his shame and his humiliation. So what do we do with a crucified Messiah? What do we do with a crucified Lord? Well, I think we do what the author of the book of Hebrews writes and tells us to do in chapter 13, when the author writes, Jesus was crucified, sacrificed outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the realm of respectable society. So therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and let us bear with him the shame, the reproach, the abuse, the degradation that he bore. The way of the cross is sharing in Jesus' suffering, yes, but it's also sharing in his shame, in his humiliation. Because as we share in the name of Jesus and exalt the name of Jesus and are shamed and humiliated and degraded for it, our shame, our humiliation, any dehumanization or degradation that we experience now is only temporary because he has taken the full extent of all of it on himself. We will never be brought as low as Jesus was brought as he placed himself on the cross for our sake. Because it's in his dehumanization and his exaltation that we are made human again. If you're a follower of Jesus, following Jesus is going to mess up your life. Beyond simply suffering with him, but also sharing in his shame. In walking the way of the cross... Jesus took all of it, everything we owed. And so to him, we owe it all. Pray with me. Almighty God, it was your most dear son who gave himself for us, And so I pray as we go to him to bear the shame with him that he bore, I pray that you would help us all to have the same mind, the same love of Jesus, who though he was entirely and completely and eternally with God, uh, eternally God didn't consider his position as God as something to be held on to and taken advantage of himself, uh, taken advantage of, and so he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born as one of us and being found as one of us, humbled himself to the point of death. Not just death, but death on a cross. From that cross, Father, you have lifted him and highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one who despised the shame of the cross and took it on himself for us. So, Father, we pray that you would mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, would find it none other than the way of life and peace. We pray this in the name of our crucified Lord.
Amen.